Tonight we're continuing our teaching series through the book of James. We've been studying the book of James as a community all semester long. This was written by James, the brother of Jesus, who you've heard many times, but it helps to bring a reminder that he did not believe the claims of Jesus until later on in his life, which shows me that there is place for doubters in the kingdom of God as we continue to search for truth and for meaning and for purpose. And we've been reading the book of James, hoping to understand what it says about God, what it says about us, and what it says about how we live out the gospel, how we become uh, a living example of the word of God in the everyday stuff of life, to quote a friend of mine. And so tonight we're continuing that series as we have been all semester, and we're going to focus on James 5, 1 through 6. And before I read our primary passage, would you pray with me once more? God, we thank you that your word is good, that it's for teaching and encouragement, correction and rebuke. I pray that each of us would come humbly to your scriptures, knowing that you have an abundant life for us, even though it may not always look the way we expect. God, may we trust in you and not just in ourselves, and let the Bible help us to do that in your name. Amen. James 5, 1 through 6. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Verse 3, your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who moved, who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Like most of the book of James, it's got a vibe of rebuke, of correction, of instruction. And to be honest, I was planning to talk about this passage And I thought it was saying something that I now think it doesn't. Does that make sense? Like, for a minute, I was reminded that I'm not just a pastor. I'm also a Christian. Um, I need to be open to learning from the Bible. And so I came to this passage thinking that I was going to be able to talk about generosity, about the ills of wealth, about giving your money to Chi Alpha, you know, giving your money to missions and investing all good things, all kingdom things, all things um, that are of God. I think we should do those things. But I think sometimes when we study scripture, we put meaning from other places in scripture into verses that aren't saying that. Does that make sense? Like, we're not going to talk about the Trinity tonight because this passage isn't talking about the Trinity. It doesn't mean the Trinity doesn't exist. It just means it's not the focus of our study. So as much as I wanted to talk about the gift of generosity and what it means that everything you see around you is a gift and that people have labored and given for years to make this moment come true in your life and mine, I don't get to do that tonight. But I do get, hopefully like you get, to approach a text with as little presupposition as possible, and with an openness for the Holy Spirit to give us discernment into what it means. I love in Romans it says that we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. That faith involves our mental aptitude from God. That's by design. That's not an experiment of postmodernism. That's not in reaction to new atheism. That's in the design that our minds would have an active role in faith. 
So James 5, 1 through 6. What did it mean to those that were originally listening, and what should it mean to you and I? I was thinking about it because the heading in my Bible says, Warning to Rich Oppressors. And we know in James 1, 1 and 2 that the book, the, most of the book, most of this letter is written to the early church, scattered Jewish people who believe in Jesus as the Messiah all throughout the land. And this letter was probably circulated. But as I begin to study and read people slightly smarter than me, okay, a lot smarter than me, about what this passage might mean, I came up against something I didn't expect. Most theologians would argue, and I think I would agree after listening to them and studying the text, that verses 1 through 6 are not directed at the wealthy that are in the church. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to, like, you can just have, like, five Mercedes and not care about the poor. Okay, so Jesus is still coming for that part of your heart. Don't worry. He's just not attacking that part of your heart here. James 5, 1 through 6, because James switches how he's talking. In previous verses, he says brothers or sisters or brethren. In 5, 1 through 6, he says you rich people. And he is speaking in a tone and with language that would be so familiar to an early Christian coming out of a Judaic framework, a Jewish framework, in which they would recognize that these six verses mirror much of what we see the prophets in the Old Testament saying to those that are oppressing the people of God. In that case, Israel, in this case, uh, followers of Jesus. What's interesting is that on the outset, this passage has very little to do with me, which is a really great reminder that the Bible isn't written to blame. It's not written to you. I love how Lent teaches us that we're extras in the story of God, that he cares much about us, but it's about his glory and our maturity. It's not about our glory and him shifting to what we believe. We never say that, but we can often live like that. I can be guilty of that. So James 5, 1 through 6 is a New Testament prophetic declaration that those that are oppressing people of God, Jesus' people, will get their due. This is important and encouraging because the people that are originally reading this or hearing this are under oppression. And before we try to write ourselves into the story, I want to warn us that we are not oppressed, that we are not persecuted, that just because we don't have the normative or um, majority culture in our country anymore does not mean that all of a sudden we're persecuted. So I want to be clear about that, because that would undermine the actual church in other places in the world that face more things than you and I would ever face in our lives. Does it mean that people are challenging our beliefs? Sure. But that's very different than laying your life down for what you believe in. So when I was reading 1 through 6, I kept asking selfishly, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for Chi Alpha at American University? And I was thinking of a friend of mine. Her name is Sarah, and she's on Chi Alpha staff at another campus in our region. And she once shared a heartbreaking story. She was mentoring a student, and the student that she was mentoring had just been a survivor of sexual assault. And the student, not Sarah who's on staff, the student came to Sarah and said, where does this experience fit within my theology, and where does forgiveness come to bear? Like, what is my theological obligation in a tragic, horrifying, not designed by God, complete brokenness, where does that all 
come and collide. And Sarah's response, I think, was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And she said something that at first was very stark, but I thought of it when I read this passage. She told this young woman, she said this, she said, you have to trust by forgiving that God will deal with that man that harmed you either on the cross through forgiveness or in hell through punishment. That forgiveness is giving up the right to seek out our own justice, but trusting an absolute and violent justice, either at the cross or in eternity separated from God. James 5, 1 through 6 would sound similar to that story if you were an early church person because you have been oppressed. You have been under religious and political persecution. And so you would not think in the similar way that you and I think, if I just had more money, things would go well. But as we know, sometimes more money is more. Yeah, modern day prophet said that. <laughs> this passage is giving comfort to the poor, to the oppressed that are followers of Jesus because it is saying that God will have his way with those that are oppressors. Do you see why it's encouraging now if you're reading this from that lens? You're, under, you're in struggle, you're under persecution, you're looking for a way out. You might think that political power uh, is what would get you that. You might be disappointed that Jesus didn't come and establish an earthly government. But instead, inspired by the Holy Spirit, James says, not to seek after wealth, not to seek after power, but instead know that God sees and hears the cries and sees the injustice and he will take care of it. Do you see how that can be encouraging? Does that make a little bit more sense? I'm not saying it's encouraging to us, and here's why. Because when I read that, I realize that I'm wealthy by the world's standards. I don't like reading passages where, like, the wealth is corroded and ends up killing me. I don't know about you guys, but I'm not like, let's put that on a t-shirt and sell it at the Feed One bookstore. Our wealth will kill us. Sky Alpha! <laughs> New Testament scholars tell us that the completeness of God's wrath and God's care for those that are oppressed is expressed in this story because it says your wealth has rotted, moth have eaten your clothes, and your gold and silver are corroded. So basically there's three elements that represented wealth in this time period in this culture. It was food, it was clothes, and it was money. Not too dissimilar from today. But I love how on the third one, and I never noticed this until this week, James goes for a bit of irony and says that even gold and silver will be corroded. Because I don't really do the whole study of rocks, I have never thought that those things don't corrode. I was just like, hmm, those are corroded. But then realizing that those things don't corrode easily, James is saying that even the things which seem permanent will not be permanent in the reign of Jesus. What this tells me is a few things, and I hope it tells it to you too, is that when we read scripture, we have to notice that when the church is growing, it is always under oppression, and Christians should always look different than the world around them, that we cannot blend in, that the gospel and our theology requires us to live differently. 
So much so that I initially read this thinking, oh, it's about the rich people in the church. And I read it with such a me-focused lens initially that I didn't even realize that I look like sometimes the rich oppressor, even though in this case that person is outside of the church. And notice this is the first time in the book of James that he does not offer a route to repentance. He's not saying it's not possible, but he is embarking on stating the judgment of God on those who are oppressing the people of God. Jesus cares deeply about his people, and it also tells me this if you're taking notes, that self-sufficiency is sin. Here's why. It offends the character and the nature of God. Wilberforce um, once wrote and spoke um, in his abolitionist years that in England at the time there was a lack of spiritual maturity because people only saw sin as damaging in community. As in, I see sin as bad, like most of us in here wouldn't be pro-sin. You don't have that shirt, right? Um, but you would usually, like those back then would say, sin is bad because of what it does horizontally. And that's part of the picture. But Wilberforce makes the argument, and this text does too, is that sin at its root isn't just terrible because it causes pain between you and I. My brokenness causes hurt for you. It's that it offends the very character and nature of God. Is that sin tells a lie about who God is through my life. Which is a betrayal of who I am in God because I'm either made in his image or I'm made in his image and a child of God. Like those are two groups of people that exist. People made in the image of God or people that are made in the image of God and are children of God. So self-sufficiency as sin. I don't like that. I... I love reading blogs and books about life hacking, about 87 ways to hack my marriage. I don't even know what that means. Like, do I want my marriage hacked? <laughs> That's crazy. I, I don't know what I did there, but it probably was bad. How to make my life more productive. How to, like, I, I read, you know, Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week. I'm like, I want one of those. Michael Hyatt's How to Shape 10 Hours Off of Your Work Week. I've read it five times. Like, I love being independent and sufficient on my own. A friend of mine who's a chaplain here says that we cannot pursue our own sufficiency and ambition and the glory of God. It does not compute. Mark Batterson, my pastor, says, you can't be full of yourself and full of the Holy Spirit. Self-sufficiency, relying on our wealth, our talent, our skills, our resume, is sin because it places it as an idol, and an idol is anything that we expect to give us what only God could give us. Does that make sense? Like, most of you aren't going to, like, go build a golden calf on the quad or, like, build a sculpture of Ryan Gosling and worship it. Okay, some of you might, and we'll talk later. <laughs> but most of us are, will elevate things that are good, but we'll put them in the place of God, and we don't even think that we're missing the mark. It's clear here that if we put our trust in ourselves, Isaiah says that our heart is a deceitful instrument. That we will not walk closely to Jesus or look like him if we put our trust in ourselves. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be productive. That doesn't mean we shouldn't um, pursue our talents. That doesn't mean we shouldn't engage the world with the, the giftings and personality God's given us. It is saying that we should do it in its rightful place. That order is important to God. So the big idea from this text 
is that we get Jesus and that he suffices wonderfully if we allow him. Mike Godzo would call it the beautiful exchange that at the end of the day, if I give up all that I have and sacrifice my life for Jesus, it's really not a sacrifice once I realize the depth of the glory of who Jesus is. We get Jesus, and he suffices wonderfully if we'll allow him. Our finances, our use of money, how we relate to power and resources and access, it does describe in detail our true passions. Not the passions that we'd say, but the passions that we live. But the main part of this text is that you and I, through the cross, through the resurrection, empowered by the Spirit, we get Jesus. A pastor uh, asked this question a few years ago, and uh, it's one of those pastors who, I don't agree with him on like 90% of what he says. But this one thing that he said has changed a lot of how I've thought about things, so I wanted to share it. He says, I may have shared this before, so if I have, just pretend like you never heard it and just be, be a good person in the pew. That'd be awesome. He said, if you could get to heaven, all your favorite food, all your favorite people, all your favorite things, no sorrow, no heartbreak, no health issues, but not have Jesus there, would you still want to go? It's clearly a trick question from a pastor. But I'm always like, I would. I mean, I would not. No. No. But inside, I'm like, yes, absolutely. I mean, I'll think of Jesus. I mean, I'm bummed he's not there, but you said my favorite food. You said no pain, no tears, no sorrow. What that reveals in my heart, and I can only speak for myself, is that it's so very easy to confuse the gift of the person of Jesus in our lives with the gifts that Jesus gives to our lives. I've heard it said like this before, it's, do we seek the face of God or do we seek the hand of God? I think as followers of Jesus, as children of God, as co-heirs of Christ, as scripture calls us, we have the prerogative, the imperative to pursue both. But if we do not pursue God apart from him doing one more thing for us, we don't have an accurate picture of who God is and what he's already done. I've shared bits of my story before, and, and this just like came to me, and I, I want to share it. Is I remember if, when I was in college, and maybe right after college, I was navigating some mental health issues, and, and I remember just breaking down in tears in a relative's house, and I remember so clearly the Holy Spirit speaking to me, and I don't mean like Morgan Freeman speaking to me, although that would be awesome. I am convinced that's probably how God sounds. Um, but I just meant like an impression, uh, like, like a feeling, like a nudge. And it was one of the most painful yet freeing things I think I've ever heard from the Holy Spirit. And it was this. It was, Blaine, if I don't do anything else for you, is what I've done for you enough? If I don't answer one more prayer for you, if I don't show up in your mental health struggles, if I don't show up in your family, if I stop giving you favor, if I take away access from me for some reason, is my track record enough? Is what I've done on the cross enough for you to still follow me? So, of course, I'm, I'm crying at that point. That's one of the only responses in that moment, I think. 
And I had to come to a conclusion that the answer is yes. That I, I'm like, well, I hope that doesn't mean you're not going to show up anymore because I like all the nice stuffs. And I hope you still continue to abide in the praise of your people when two or three are gathered. But it was a heart check moment. It was a test. It was a question about my motives. Am I in this because of how I feel when I'm here? Or am I in this because I believe that Jesus is true? The reason that's important for you and I to figure out now is there will come a season in your life. Ecclesiastes is clear. There will come a season in your life when the feelings will not be there, where the positive vibes aren't enough, and where community cannot carry you. At that moment... Will you rely on the things that Jesus does or will you rely on the gift of Jesus himself? The beautiful thing about the gospel isn't that he gives us stuff, is that he gave us himself. Is that before he wants anything from us, he wants to give himself to us. That he is for us. This passage to me reminds me that the things that I can so easily trust in can come back and consume me. That wealth can consume me. That my desire for purpose, if not directed under the lordship of Christ, can consume me. That I can be like the person that James is writing to. I have lived in luxury, in self-indulgence. I have fattened myself in the day of slaughter. What that means is are we making the main thing the main thing? My Chi Alpha director in college, Craig Woodham, would say, are you majoring on the majors and minoring on the minors? Which in the AU context, it had to be like, are you majoring and you double majoring and triple majoring on the majors and not minoring in the CLEG? And the so it's a little bit more complicated than at Alabama, but just go with me. Do you and I realize that we get Jesus and that he suffices wonderfully if we'll allow him? I love that Jesus surprises us as we read the Gospels. He surprises people. He offends people. He builds relationship with unexpected people. I think sometimes our own intellect and our own education can get in the way of us living a Jesus-centered, spirit-filled life because we have so many other things to rely on. We're like the most educated, we have the most access to theological resources, and yet I'm not so sure I'd say that I am or that you are the most devout Christians in history. I was thinking about that the other day. I, I was at an interface service, and, and I honestly had the question, and I don't know if it was me or the Holy Spirit or a mixture of the two, but I was like, I wonder if any of these other chaplains who believe in a completely different what they'd call truth than I do, I wonder if they'd view me as a devout Christian. Like, I wonder if my deeds reflect my faith in a way that would communicate that I really believe. Because I was listening to speakers who their whole days are organized by their faith. What they wear and what they eat is organized by what they believe in. And it's so easy for me to wake up and think, Jesus, I'll get that quiet time with you later, bro. I mean, I don't really say that because I would get struck with lightning. <laughs> I've said this before, but I think it needs to be repeated is that I think 
something happened where we found out that God loved us and we realized that we could do church casually. Like, you don't have to, like, wear your Sunday best. Um, That we then assumed falsely that we can casually relate to Jesus. But we cannot. Revelation says, like, it's better to be against God than to be lukewarm with God. And then there's this weird picture of vomit in Revelation that's brought up. I'll spare you the details. James is writing to those who would unintentionally or maybe intentionally, because of their self-sufficiency and wealth, oppress those who are following Jesus. The same people that Acts says have sold all of their possessions and given to each other and lived in community free from need because of generosity. So this passage isn't challenging me to tell you to give. It's challenging me to tell you to follow the lines of your passions and your schedule and your checkbook and your online banking. And there is where you discover your true theology. Your true theology isn't what you say in small group. That would be too easy. Your true theology is how you spend your life. Or as my pastor would say, back home, your time, talent, and treasure. You see how he did that? Three T's? Anyways. He's better at that than me. As we think through what our response can be tonight and as the band comes up and leads us in song, this passage for me is so filled with joy because you and I have access to Jesus. We don't have to wait on anything else. We don't have to wait on any circumstance to change. We don't even have to see all of our brokenness healed or fixed, but we get Jesus and he suffices wonderfully. It's why you see people around the world who believe in Jesus have one page of a Bible and in tears celebrate that they have that access to God. It's why when you and I first believed in Jesus, we probably couldn't shut up about it. And we are probably terrible, obnoxious friends about Jesus. It's like when you, you know, like you come to Jesus, your roommate's going to sleep, you're like, can I pray for you and your soul? May our continuance and continuity and community and our education and our knowledge about God, may that not ever affect our passion for Jesus. May what we know about the gospel never remove the mystery that says, I can't believe I get this. I've been there, right? When I think about my day or my week as a campus pastor, as a Kyle director, it's so easy for me so easy for me to say, I have to do this. I have to do that. I have to do this. It's easy for me to complain about the very thing that I prayed about. Because six years ago, I prayed that God would send me somewhere strategic amongst intellectual students who would see a desire to change the world and that the gospel would be interjected into their lives and that I could play a small role. And then you fast forward and I begin to complain about the very thing that I prayed about. The question is, are you guilty of that too? As you embrace the busyness of life, of academics, of passions and of opportunities, it can be easy to forget that we get Jesus and he suffices wonderfully and then we can begin to insult God unintentionally by complaining about the very thing that we prayed for. We complain about the very thing we wanted. I do this often. I have a two-year-old son 
I do this often. I love him, but I'm like, dude, again? You use the bathroom? Again? How many times do we gotta do this every day, man? The difference between a blessing and a burden is often our perspective of it. And if we believe that Jesus suffices wonderfully, then everything around us becomes a blessing or an opportunity for redemption. The Jesuits would say, it allows us to gather the graces around us. That you and I have access to grace in Jesus in the cross for sure, but there is grace in a smile, that there is grace in a warm cup of coffee, that there is grace in time with Jesus in the morning, that there is grace in community, confessing your sins to somebody in your small group, there is grace in the tears that you shed for your friend who you wished believed, there is grace in that family relationship that isn't perfect, but there is still love there. There is grace all around us, and what makes me miss it, and what makes you miss it, is that we have forgotten that Jesus suffices wonderfully if we'll allow him. Let's stand as we pray and sing together. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to see the world around us from this perspective that if we have you, we have all that we need. May that not just be something that we say, but may we live in light of that. Jesus, forgive me. Help me not to complain about the very things I asked you for. Help me not to have an attitude where I say I have to, but I say I get to. Remind me of the passion I had for you when I first met you. Remind me of the passion I had for you when I first got to serve in ministry. All I did was, was, was fold 125 bulletins on a Thursday. And I thought, how cool it is that you'd use me to do this. And then it's so easy to complain now, years later, that I have to do this, that I have another sermon to write, another resource group talk to prepare. God, may you remind me that you use me not because you need me, but because you want me. And because you want me to want the things that you want, and that is the kingdom of God coming to earth through us as ambassadors of change, as agents of change. God, as we sing this song, as we reflect, may we start with just that moment and dwell on that, that we get you, Jesus, because of what you've done for us, not because of what we've done, and we put our attentions and our affections towards you because you suffice wonderfully if we allow you. God, may we celebrate you in these next few moments. Not just celebrating that you can provide a breakthrough, but celebrating that the greatest breakthrough, the greatest miracle has already happened at the cross. And we thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, we pray.